Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome to the LSE for this online event. My name is Nigel Dodd and I'm Professor of Sociology at the LSE and Editor-in-Chief of the British Journal of Sociology. The annual BGS lecture has been running for more than a decade now with a series of distinguished speakers who have set out their own vision of the most significant questions and debates within the discipline. Each lecture is usually published in a subsequent issue of the journal with a set of responses to it by other major scholars within that field. I'm very pleased to welcome Julian Goh as this year's lecturer. Julian is currently a, a professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Chicago. He's written several books, including American Empire and the Politics of Meaning, 2008, Patterns of Empire, the British and American Empire, 1688 to Present, 2011, Postcolonial Thought and Social Theory, 2016, and Policing Empires, Militarization and Race in Britain and America, which is forthcoming. He's won prizes from the American Sociological Association, the Eastern Sociological Society, the American Political Science Association, and the International Studies Association, among other institutions. He's the winner of the highly prestigious Lewis A. Koza Award for theoretical agenda setting in sociology given by the American Sociological Association, and he's currently president of the Social Science History Association. The title of his lecture today is Thinking Against Empire, Anti-Colonial Thought as Social Theory. For Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is LSEBJS. This online event is being recorded and will be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. As usual, there will be the chance for you to put your questions to Julian at the end. To submit these, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Questions will be passed on to me and I'll pose as many of them as possible to Julian. But now I'm delighted to hand over to Julian Go. Thank you, uh, Nigel, for that uh, kind introduction. Um, <clears throat> and I wanna also thank uh, LLM Prell and Nicholas Martin for the uh, administrative and technical support. It's a great honor to share some of my recent thoughts about sociology with you. And I, I look forward to your critical feedback. Uh, I'm assuming you can see uh, my slide, and I want to start with a quote from a social thinker who wrote this in 1899. Society is an association of men who are together for mutual help so that each could enjoy the highest possible well-being, a situation that could never be arrived at by the sole efforts of individuals without the aid of others. A man cannot live alone. He alone cannot build his house weave his clothes and produce the food and other items he needs. So one of the things that's interesting to me is that this thinker is trying to define and theorize society um, at a time when many others were doing the same thing. This was written in 1899, as I said, which was just six years after the Department of Sociology was established here at the University of Chicago and after the first doctorate in sociology in the United States was awarded at Cornell. Uh, 1899 was not long after the American Journal of Sociology was created. Uh, it was the year after Emile Durkheim founded the journal L'Anne Sociologique in France, and one year after the LSE was founded. Uh, it was also one year after uh, Franklin Giddens' uh, founding sociological text, Elements of Sociology, was published. 
And one year after Gabriel Tarde in, in France published his seminal work, Social Laws, uh, an Outline of Sociology. Um, so the passage I started with uh, was written in an important time for uh, uh, American and European sociology. But the quote is not from any of these sociologists. It comes instead from this man, uh, Apollinario Mabini. Um, I'm, I'm assuming, I think we're a little bit behind. Can you see, are you seeing just the, the dates there? Are you seeing any photos yet? Nigel, are we? Uh, okay, there we go. Um, this man, uh, Apollinario Mabini, um, and uh, he was in fact uh, <clears throat> not a sociologist. He was part of the revolutionary government established in the town of Malolos in the Philippines, the government that had declared the Philippines an independent republic and that was rebelling against Spanish and then United States rule. Mabini is known in fact as the brains of that revolution. He helped create the new government and write the new constitution. And so Mabini was an anti-colonial activist and thinker striving to create a new nation under the threat of extinction by foreign imperial powers and particularly at that time by the United States, the very country where disciplinary sociology was emerging as the dominant institutional form of thought. Um, so what interests me here is not whether Mabini's conceptualization of society offers some radically new divergent statement on the social. What interests me instead is that he had a concept of society, that Mabini was thinking about the social and writing about it amidst anti-colonial revolution. Just as Durkheim was thinking about society in France, just as the LSC was being founded, and just as the Chicago School sociologists were creating their sociological program while their fellow countrymen were invading the Philippines and killing Mabini's comrades in the jungles and mountains of Luzon, Mabini was thinking about and theorizing society. And in fact, Mabini's thinking was a crucial part of his activism. Mabini was not thinking and writing about society because he wanted to have an article accepted in the American Journal of Sociology. He was thinking and writing about society because he wanted to theorize why a society should revolt against colonial rulers and he wanted to know something about society so that he could better create a post-colonial government for that society. Um, so this is the theme of my talk today. Uh, not Mabini uh, in, in particular, but more broadly anti-colonial thought and social theory, or rather anti-colonial thought as sociological thought. Um, I hope to show that Mabini was part of a larger tradition of social thought, an anti-colonial tradition spanning the colonized world and beyond in the 19th and 20th centuries. And I want to show how this was a critical and rich body of writing and thinking about society that we should recover and appreciate even as dominant metropolitan society has largely excluded this body of thinking on the grounds that it is not really sociology. Uh, but before getting into the de details of that argument, I want to first contextualize my intervention. And the way I want to do that is by historicizing sociology a bit. Um, and this will allow us, I think, to better appreciate uh, anti-colonial thought as a form of sociology. Um, and I'll get into that in the body of the talk. But first, um, the history. Um, slide, please. Uh, next slide, please. Now, of course, when we uh, learn about the history of sociology, what we learn is that sociology was founded in Britain, the United States, and Europe as a response to industrialization and its problems. 
generating the Chicago School of Sociology and its focus on urban issues or Durkheim's response to industrialization and the new modern division of labor and problems of social integration or Weber's sociology in the context of the emerging German state and so on. But for understanding my intervention today, we need to recognize a different history, a history that situates sociology less within the context of industrialization and more within the history of imperialism. After all, we social scientists today operate for the most part within a framework of imperial thought, not imperial because social science is inherently racist or something like that, though you might rightly argue that, but because of its history and legacies. As I've argued and demonstrated in other work, disciplinary sociology and social science more broadly as we know it today was born in, of, and for empire. The very notion of the social as a space between nature and the spiritual realm that emerged in European thought was born in the 19th century and resonated among European male elites to make sense of and to try to manage social upheaval and resistance from workers, women, and colonized natives. In the United States, slide please, one of the first books with the word sociology in the title was published in 1854 by George Fitzhugh. It was called Sociology for the South or the Failure of Free Society. And it deployed the concept of the social to essentially vindicate the slave system in the American South. Slide please. Um, then in the 19th and early 20th centuries, as the social science disciplines were institutionalized, social thought became further tethered to empire. This was a time when empires themselves were expanding or consolidating. Uh, next slide, please. This chart on the number of colonial territories acquired per year gives something of this history. You'll see that in the late 19th century and early 20th century, just as sociology in the United States was emerging, this was the moment of high imperialism. Imperial powers stepped up their acquisitions. And as Raywin Connell points out, early sociology in this period reflected the interests of this new imperial formation manifesting the worldview of white male elites in the rising metropolitan centers of empire. This means that the questions that were asked by sociology in the early 20th century reflected the concerns and categories of these elites and, and imperial power more broadly. From, from its anxieties about social disorder to its attachment to social Darwinism, to its focus on the so-called Negro problem in the US or questions of how to assimilate immigrants or its promulgation of race theory uh, Weber and Durkheim's Orientalist and Essentialist lenses for discussing other cultures. In all of these respects and more, sociology reflected the questions of interest to imperial centers and embedded the worldview of those metropoles, thus expressing what I have called elsewhere the imperial standpoint. Slide, please. Now, of course, today, sociology is very different. But nonetheless, many aspects of sociology still carry the imprint of its imperial history. This is seen in sociology's persistent essentialism, its analytic bifurcations, its metrocentrism and other operations that I've discussed in detail elsewhere and which I can't for lack of time delve into here. But suffice to say that the structure of the imperial episteme persists in diverse parts of metropolitan sociological thinking. And this structure must be recognized as a legacy of sociology's imperial history. And this then raises the issue of an alternative history that we might tell. And that history is also tied to empire, but it's a history not of empire standpoint, but of resistance to it. And here, of course, we come to anti-colonialism. <clears throat> now, the spread of British, European, and American empires did not go untested, of course, just as they were consolidating around the world 
and as imperial sociology was being institutionalized, colonized peoples everywhere responded through various forms of resistance, not least through organizing anti-colonial nationalist movements, seeking either independence or full integration into the metropoles as equal territories. Um, slide, please. This chart from a project by my collaborator, Jake Watson, um, and I give some sense of the historical rhythm of these anti-colonial movements. Uh, this is the founding of nationalist organizations, which of course <clears throat> isn't the only form of anti-colonial resistance, but it does give some sense of the timing. While there was some nationalist organizing in the 19th century, most of the action happens in the 20th century, after the earlier moment of the high imperialism and the birth of disciplinary social science. This was the time of active anti-colonial nationalist resistance that contributed ultimately to decolonization later. Um, slide, please. This was also the period of transnational anti-colonial organizing manifest in various Pan-African Congresses, and of course, the Bandung meeting of 1955, among many other such forums. <clears throat> now, what is of crucial interest for us here is not just the fact of anti-colonial resistance, but the ideational components of it. For with the proliferation of anti-colonialism also came a proliferation of new discourses from colonized peoples. Slide, please. This was an anti-colonial discourse critiquing empires, critiquing colonialism and their correlates. And it was part and parcel of larger anti-colonial projects, projects that aim to overthrow colonialism and its legacies. And my argument is that while this anti-colonial discourse was largely a political movement seeking to overthrow empire and institute a post-colonial cosmopolitan world, anti-colonial discourse also contained social thought. While social, social, uh, social theory and sociology was institutionalized in the metropole, to reflect the imperial episteme, anti-colonial thought was forming from the ground up and the dark underside of empire. And this body of thought offered ways of thinking about, theorizing and understanding society that I suggest amount to a critical alternative sociology of sorts. So who were these anti-colonial thinkers I'm talking about? Well, by my criteria of anti-colonial, what we have are far too many thinkers to name uh, many of their texts we won't ever be able to access, but let me just clarify some things to give you a bigger picture and a little bit of a specification of what I mean. <clears throat> First, most of these anti-colonial thinkers were born in or lived in the colonies and drew upon their experiences there. Slide, please. Uh, they included everyone from, say, Apolinario Mabini, who I mentioned, or Jose Rizal in the Philippines, or their contemporary Eugenia Maria de Hostos in Puerto Rico. It also included Franz Fanon, Amé Césaire, Kwame Nkrumah, Amakal Cabral, the Vietnamese anti-colonial activist Nguyen An Ninh, the Martinican surrealist Suzanne Césaire, and so on and so on. These are just to name some. Many of them, of course, were educated in imperial capitals like Paris, London, or Barcelona, where anti-colonialists often met, mobilized, and theorized. Um, this slide, please. Um, so just a couple of books that, that discuss uh, these centers. Um, other anti-colonial thinkers lived and operated within the internal colonies of metropolitan centers. W.E.B. Du Bois, operating mainly within the U.S., is an obvious example, but there are others. For example, slide please. I'll, I'll shortly mention Loria Cornelius Kellogg, an indigenous activist born on the Oneida Indian Reservation in Wisconsin. She and other indigenous thinkers represent an anti-colonial tradition of thought that operated within the confines of settler colonialism living and struggling from within the internal colonized spaces of empire. Second, anti-colonial thought emerged from a variety of social positions along a sort of continuum, we can say, of professionalization. 
Some anti-colonial thinkers were actual academics teaching in lower schools or universities. Um, slide, please. This list would include, of course, W.E.B. Du Bois, who was a sociologist uh, officially, but also the Indian sociologist Radhakmal Mukherjee, or the Algerian sociologist Abdel Malik Sayad, who was one of Pierre Bourdieu's collaborators, or the Lebanese theorist Madi Abmel. Many others, and I'd say most others, though, were journalists or writers or artists, and others were activists and political leaders. Uh, slide, please. Journalists and political activists included, for instance, Maybell Dove in the Gold Coast. Political leaders included people like Nkrumah or in Puerto Rico, Pedro Albizo Campos. The list, again, is almost infinite. The point is that, except for some rare cases, anti-colonial social thought did not typically come in the form of academic writing. It was articulated in journalistic writings, political pamphlets, speeches, art, or, in other, uh, or other discourses. And this, of course, is part of the challenge. While institutional sociology would dismiss their thought as not sociology because it wasn't academic, we have to overcome this limitation and read their writings and hear their words with a more open sociological mind. And this gets exactly to my larger claim. Despite the fact that these thinkers were not card-carrying social scientists, they nonetheless offered up important ideas and knowledges about the world that imperial sociology either ignored or overlooked. They offered, I'd say, often innovative ideas about society, the social and social relations that we might learn from. And I further want to claim that this was indeed a sociology containing potentially generalizable concepts and theories. That is, anti-colonial social thought does not just offer particularist ideas pertaining only to the dilemmas of colonized or racialized peoples. Though I will argue that these ostensibly particularistic ideas are themselves important and we need to take them seriously, I also want to suggest that anti-colonial thought has much more to offer for thinking about society more broadly. Again, this is not about delving into particularism. And so one of the things I'm trying to do here is um, make an invitation. That is an invitation to experiment. For decades, sociological reasoning and practice has been dominated by metrocentrism. That is, we have developed concepts in, of, and for the interests and concerns of the metropole, and then applied them to the rest of the world. But what if we move the other way around? Rather than developing our categories, concepts, and problematics in, of, and for the metropole to then use for making sense of the rest of the world, what if we went in the other direction? So let me now turn to some of the substantive ideas and concepts that um, anti-colonial thought offers. Um, and one way to do so is to discuss some overarching themes, some shared themes, even though there's different um, differences that I want to discuss. Um, and we can begin with the theme of society itself. Slide, please. And I want to mention here three different approaches to the social that emerge from anti-colonial thinkers. First, let me return to Apollinario Mabini, with whom I began this talk. Slide. Um, as I've noted, Mabini defines society to be, um, next slide, please, association of men who are together for mutual help. Remember this quote. Now, what's going on here is that society is theorized as a series of reciprocal exchanges and obligations. This point becomes clear if you read the rest of the text. And of course, this language summons uh, the exchange theories of say the Scottish Enlightenment, perhaps Adam Smith, along with some versions of European social contract theory. And Mabini would have been familiar with these theories from his studies of law um, in Manila. But there's a couple of things of interest to me here beyond this issue. First, while Mabini appropriates some of these European ideas, he merges them with 
Spanish Catholicism and ultimately ends up with a somewhat different notion of society. While the Scottish, Scottish Enlightenment were famously individualist and emphasized market exchange, Mabini theorizes mutual obligation as natural law existing prior to and above individuals. More precisely, he claims that the reciprocal obligations of society's members express the natural law of reason. Um, and, and ultimately, in Mabini's approach, society is not reducible to the market where self-interested individuals exchange material goods, nor does society for him emerge victorious from a Hobbesian state of anarchy, but rather begins always already as a series of reciprocal exchanges and obligations seen as rights and maintained by reason. To fulfill social obligations for Mabini was exactly to fulfill natural law, and these fulfillments constituted the social. The second point of note, Mabini's creative rearticulation of European notions of exchange in the social contract was developed amidst and through anti-colonial struggle. Mabini writes these ideas of society to vindicate the Philippine Revolution. He argues that foreign colonizers like, colonizers like Spain and then the U.S. transgressed natural law in that they were not reciprocal in their actions. They were appropriating from Philippine society without giving anything back. And because of this, they could be and should be overthrown and replaced with a new government, one which would restore the proper workings of society by better ensuring the smooth flow of reciprocal exchange and obligation. So if disciplinary sociology at the time in the United States was emerging to justify imperialism, Mabini's social theory emerged to justify anti-imperialism. Um, slide, please. Um, next slide as well, please. Thank you. Um, so this is one approach to the social I'm, I'm here extracting. Society essentially as a series of reciprocal exchanges. Um, a second approach comes from a different colonial context. And again, I, I wanna be clear, anti-colonial thought is not reducible to a singular set of ideas. It is heterogeneous within a larger system of similarities. And this heterogeneity, I'd argue, is at least partly rooted in different social contexts, different forms of colonialism, and hence different struggles. For example, Mabini theorized society in the context of Spanish colonial mercantilism, whereby the Philippines agrarian society was tethered to an extractive, almost tributary form of colonial domination. But other colonized peoples faced different colonial logics, and so they faced what I would call different problematics of domination, each invoking particular questions and concerns amidst anti-colonial struggle. Indigenous peoples subjected to settler colonialism, for instance, did not face mercantilist extraction, but rather dispossession and displacement from the land. And this, I'd argue, shaped their alternative conceptual approaches to society. For in these approaches, society emerges not so much as a series of reciprocal exchanges between men, but rather as a series of relations between humans, nature, and the spiritual world. Slide, please. Um, here, I want us to consider the writings of Laura Cornelius Kellogg, who I mentioned earlier. Slide, please. As a founding member of the Society of American Indians in the early 20th century, she was motivated by struggles to restore land and autonomy for indigenous Americans. And amidst these struggles, she articulated a view of social relations as inextricably tethered to nature and spirits. According to Kellogg, um, Indian society before the intrusion of colonialism was there very different from the Hobbesian state of nature. Slide, please. Society was one where the red man was brother of the gods, living with the beautiful watercourses and the great forests. You can read this quote here. 
Furthermore, Kellogg explains how the tribes or nations in which the red man lived <coughs> aggregated into a larger unit, the five nations of the Confederacy. The different nations were not woven together by joint economic or political interests, but by the summoning of the eagle. Slide, please. She says, each nation is free unto itself like a free man, but when the eagle, which scans the heights and the valleys over the home of the nations, gives the cry, then are they one heart, one head, one mind. In Kellogg's conception, therefore, the unity of society is obtained through the command of the spirit's material manifestation in the natural realm. So Kellogg did not separate humans, the spirits, and the land. And while this conception of course, had political value, opening up a trenchant critique of settler colonialism, it also has conceptual value. Kellogg was writing at a time when dominant conceptions of society were coming from the Chicago School, which theorized society as a series of associations among men based upon resemblances. Humans' relations with the land or with the gods were completely bracketed out. Alternatively, Kellogg and other indigenous thinkers as well uh, offered a notion of society as an intricate web of interdependence between spirits, humans, and nature, of which land was a crucial part, a sort of thick interdependence of elements that environmental sociologists today might urge us to recognize. Long before Bruno Latour tried to get us to re-theorize the social as an assemblage consisting of humans and nature and material objects, Kellogg and indigenous anti-colonialists were articulating a similar notion. And what's interesting is actually Kellogg was not alone here, a somewhat different version, but nonetheless consistent with the overall theme, comes from <clears throat> the Indian anti-colonial sociologist, Radhika uh, Mukherjee, slide please. Um, I've learned about uh, Mukherjee um, from Sujata Patel, who's written about him, and my student here at Chicago, Noah Silver. Um, now, in his writings of the 1920s, Mukherjee landed upon what can be thought of as an ecological theory of the social. But unlike the social ecology of the early Chicago school and some anthropologies of the time, Mukherjee's approach was much more critical and took nature much more seriously. Quote, uh, I'm sorry, slide. In one of his founding declarations, he argues uh, that man and the region by which he meant um, lo the local natural environment are not separate, but mutually interdependent entities, uh, ent entities, plastic, fluent, and growing. And he opposes this conception directly to the so-called human ecological approach, which, uh, slide please, um, which has been concerned almost entirely, he says, with biotic factors. And there's been an undue prominence, he says, given in history and economics to the purely uh, in, uh, human influences. Um, slide please. He goes on to argue that what is needed is a sociology that stresses not only the intimate ecological interrelations of man, but also his close alliance with the entire range of ecologic forces and so on. Now this way of thinking about social relations opened up all kinds of innovations by Mukherjee. But what is notable here is how it fueled his passionate critique of colonialism in India and around the world, prefiguring Latin American dependency theories by at least a half century. Mukherjee criticizes colonialism for thrusting weaker societies into a larger exploitative division of labor whereby colonized societies are forced into a system of export monoculture. The system, he says, entails new forms of bonded labor, which he says were more inhuman than even the old system of domestic slavery. The system also, and here he goes far beyond Latin American dependency theories later, has devastating ecological effects. Slide, please. Labor is, he says, 
um, not merely demoralized by the herding of masses of men, um, not merely are the surrounding agriculture and stock raising ignored, but there's also a progressive exhaustion of the soil owing to continuous cultivation of a single crop. He later describes this as a slow injection of poison into their system, into the system of colonized societies, in other words, by conscienceless members of civilized peoples. Again, novel conceptions of the social went hand in hand with anti-colonial critique and struggle. Let me now turn to the third set of ideas about the social generated by anti-colonial thought. Slide, please. <clears throat> this was a view of modernity and modern society as essentially fractured along racial lines. Here, racial division and domination form the key structure and logic of the social. Franz Fanon, for instance, portrayed Algerian society under French rule as fundamentally uh, broken, broken along racialized lines, forming a compartmentalized society of the racially privileged on the one hand and the racially abject on the other. Writing at a time when neo-Durkheimian Parsonian theories of society emphasize social cohesion and integration, Fanon says that society is divided into distinct worlds, those of the colonizer and those of the colonized, the settler and the native. He writes that these are two distinct spaces, a Manichaean world divided up into compartments. Slide, please. So you see this idea here of this racially compartmentalized society and throughout his work, Fanon elaborates about, upon this idea, exculpating in urgent, passionate prose, the practices, correlates and logics attendant with this racialized bifurcation. He explores how society's racial compartmentalization reflects the economic contradictions generated by colonial rule, how it structures social space, and how it has powerful cultural and psychological effects on both the colonizer and the colonized. And again, Fanon is not alone here. This is a larger theme. Um, slide, please. Amical Cabral, for instance, the Bissau Guinean and Cape Verdean revolutionary, articulated similar ideas, writing about what he called the social situation in Portuguese colonies in Africa. Uh, next slide, please. He describes it as one of complete racial segregation, except for contact through work, where it simply furthers the interests of colonialism. <clears throat> There's no social contact between Africans and European families. And Cabral adds how institutions like cafes or bars or restaurants, which according to metropolitan sociologists at the time, would serve as sites of social integration. These for Cabral are merely the privileges of uh, Europeans. Uh, slide please. Any African bold enough to enter one of these places, he says, must be prepared to face humiliation. And I can only imagine Cabral reading Parsons or Durkheim's view of social institutions as spaces that function for social cohesion and asking yes, but functional for whom? Anti-colonial thinkers also built upon this basic picture to paint more nuanced elements of social structure. Cabral wrote about how ethnic divisions intersected with colonial divisions. Fanon in Algeria and Nguyen and Ninh in Vietnam wrote about the comprador bourgeoisie. Um, Fanon in particular theorized how the local bourgeoisie and their ties to global capital spelled doom for post-colonial state building. Other anti-colonialists added trenchant cultural critiques of the colonized bourgeoisie and their alliances with political elites, thereby offering uh, an indigenous critique of post-colonial capitalist regimes and their social structure. Slide, please. Mabel Dove, for instance, began her career as a journalist in Ghana during British rule and was an early advocate of anti-colonial feminism. She initially supported Kwame Nkrumah's movement and was part of it, 
but she soon soured on the post-independence authoritarianism masquerading as anti-colonial socialism, critiquing him and his gang, as he put it, as the comprador bourgeoisie masquerading as nationalists, um, much to the detriment of the nation. <clears throat> um, you can read here um, her, her, her words about uh, Nkrumah. And of course, this view of society as racially fractured with a social structure that includes the comprador bourgeoisie um, do seem to be about the particular features of colonial and post-colonial societies. And here's where they might be seen as too particularistic to be relevant sociologically. Um, and this is after all, one of the many reasons for why metropolitan society, I think, has ignored anti-colonial thought. That is on the grounds that it's really not general. Don't these ideas only apply to colonial and post-colonial societies, it is often said. But I'd suggest this is the wrong way to see it. First, these seemingly localized insights are important innovations in themselves. Metropolitan sociology more or less ignored the specificity of colonial and post-colonial societies. In metropolitan society, uh, I'm sorry, in metropolitan sociology, societies were either pre-modern or modern, primitive or developed, capitalist or pre-capitalist. There's no sense of colonial societies as a distinct form of society or a society having its own distinct logics. Dominant metropolitan sociology offered no theory of colonial or post-colonial societies, even though the vast majority of societies had been colonized societies, even at the time these sociologists were writing. At best, metropolitan sociology saw colonized societies as little else than spaces of the dark heaping masses awaiting white salvation or as passing moments in a presumed evolutionary scheme of modernization. And this has left us today with an unfortunate tendency to study colonial and post-colonial societies only through the lenses of metropolitan-based theories and concepts, whether they, those be modernization theory or some form of it, or Weberian theories of uh, patrimonialism or bureaucracy and so on and so on and so on. So to get insights on colonial and post-colonial societies that escape these analytic deficiencies, um, which is what I think these anti-colonial thinkers are offering, these, these localized insights, I think this in itself needs to be recognized as incredibly valuable and as an important corrective to metropolitan society. Second, I'd argue that even these seemingly specific analyses of racialized and colonized societies by anti-colonial thinkers are nonetheless relevant for thinking about metropolitan societies and other societies as well. Slide, please. Consider W.E.B. Du Bois. <clears throat> like Fanon, he theorized society as racially fractured. He claimed that society was fundamentally split by the color line and its associated veil of division. This, as scholars note, was generative for Du Bois for thinking about all kinds of complexities to modern society. But Du Bois meant it for all societies. Slide, please. He was referring to the U.S., but he also said that the color line belts the world. So the notion of modern society as racially compartmentalized is not in this sense a particularistic concept, especially especially given that our modern world that includes colonized to metropolitan societies as well, has been fundamentally shaped by colonialism and hence by racial division. To be sure, given increasing racial differentiation in many metropoles around the world, the anti-colonial conceptions of the social as racially fractured would be relevant for thinking about these metropolitan societies as well. Cabral and Fanon, for example, extend their discussion of racial division in colonial societies to construct an urban sociology of sorts, detailing the ways in which the white sectors in, in the city are maintained and the black sectors are contained. 
they discussed the racialized spatiality of the city and the effects of it all upon the city's social relations. And this, to me, amounts to innovative ethnographies, capturing social forms and relations of division applicable not just to colonial societies, but to metropoles too, offering an urban ethnography sensitive to racial inequalities and spatialization that contemporary metropolitan sociologies had ignored. <clears throat> so in short, um, what we have here are a variety of sociologies and conceptions of the social. Um, but beyond these broader conceptions of the social, anti-colonial thought offers up a, a panoply of other concepts and ideas and descriptive sociologies. Um, I can't discuss all of them here, there are a lot, but let me just discuss some of them as I head towards a conclusion. Slide, please. One has to do with the self and social identity. Slide, please. Well, George, George Herbert Mead was theorizing the self as a coherent entity, and while Marx and Durkheim had offered up notions of the self as alienated or anomic, anti-colonial theorists articulated somewhat different approaches connected to their distinct conceptualizations of society. Du Bois's early writings are exemplary here, as many of you already know. Du Bois theorized something um, none of the metropolitan theorists or European philosophers offered, that is, the racialized self in society. With his popular notion of double consciousness, Du Bois compels us to think of the racialized self that reflected the social body, a fractured self split in two. This of course bears some similarities to say Marxist theories of alienation, but I'd claim it is irreducible to it. For Du Bois, the fractured self was a product not of estranged labor, but of social practices of racism and discrimination in bifurcated societies. And it was a self that was not separated from some intrinsic essence rooted in, I, in I, an ideal of transhistorical labor, Double consciousness instead uh, meant that the self is fundamentally split in two halves whose structure troubles any sense of a singular self, alienated or otherwise. Similarly, while Du Bois spoke of double consciousness, Fanon wrote of the colonized's third person consciousness. Slide, please. Um, by being racialized, Fanon says, the colonized subject is also particularized. And so while the black man aims for the universal, he says, on screen, his black essence, his black nature is kept intact. Therefore, in the white world, the man of color encounters difficulties in the development of his bodily schema. Consciousness of the body is solely a negating activity. It is a third person consciousness. Now, one way to think about these theories of the self is that they are capturing the distinct experiences of being a colonized or racialized subject, experiences about which metropolitan sociologies had very little to say. And they also capture how the particular social structures of racialized societies generate not only distinct forms of subjectivity, but also related existential dilemmas of social selfhood. Suzanne Césaire, the Martinican anti-colonial surrealist and supporter of the negritude, negritude movement, captures some of this in her 1942 essay, The Malaise of Civilization. Slide, please. Um, in this piece, Césaire writes about the dilemma of Martinican identity and laments how colonialism has forced Martinicans into a subjectivity of dependence and imitation. She thus rearticulates Freudian psychoanalytic categories to make sense of colonial subjectivity as a tragic condition striving to emulate European civilization and become white. Uh, the most serious thing she says is that the desire for imitation has now migrated to the area of fearsome secret forces in the unconscious. And this dilemma she notes emerges exactly as a legacy of Haiti's racially segregated slave society which outlawed any assimilation of black Haitians to white society through decrees instituting occupational 
segregation and even prohibiting black Haitians from dressing the same as whites. And this social structure generated the dilemma for black Haitians. Slide, please. One will understand that from that point forward, she says, the fundamental goal of the colored man became assimilation and with overwhelming force, a disastrous confusion takes place in his mind. Liberation means assimilation. Slide, please. A second theme, um, again, as I'm, as I'm com coming to a close, um, has to do with social solidarity. <clears throat> now, we all should be familiar with Durkheim's famous work on this theme for Durkheim and for contemporaries in France like Leon Bourgeois. Solidarity was the solution to social disintegration. Hence, Durkheim sees organic solidarity as the product of and contributing to a smoothly functioning social system with a high division of labor. Marx also discussed the solidarity. Essentially, for him, it was class solidarity based upon one's place within a division of labor. And here, Marx and Durkheim's concepts are similar. They're both rooted in the division of labor. A genealogy of anti-colonial thinking on solidarity might alternatively begin with the Haitian thinker and politician Antonor Furman. Slide, please. <clears throat> Furman is probably best known for his 1885 book on the equality of human races, where he argued against the claims of racial inferiority. And in that book, as, uh, as Jared Hawley shows, Furman also offers a critique of European discourses of solidarity. His essay titled European Solidarity begins by theorizing solidarity as a form of patriotism. He's talking about it here. Um, as civilization progresses, solidarity spreads. <clears throat> Um, and he calls this sense of connectedness patriotism, another word for it. Um, now, if, Durkheim, if, Furman, if Furman here sounds like Durkheim or Spencer, who he actually critiques, the rest of the essay takes a turn. Slide, please. Furman observes that the feeling of human solidarity increases the more a nation becomes civilized in its mores and ways of thinking and expands gradually from the inner circle of the family to the largest collection of individuals sharing a common set of ideas. Slide, please. He then notes that the buck stops with race. Europeans justified by racist ideology, Furman says, um, uh, uh, naturally tend to unite in order to dominate the rest of the world and the other human races. Does not the question of race, he asks, lie at the core of these outbursts of solidarity? Furman thus analytically reconfigures solidarity from a desirable state of social connectedness that can solve modernity's problems to a tool of oppression rooted in racialized conquest. Now, while Furman deploys the solidarity concept to critique European imperialism, other anti-colonialists in his wake appropriated the concept to mobilize against European imperialism. Throughout, the solidarity concept is redesigned to refer to connectedness forged through struggle. Slide, please. Uh, a few years after Furman's book was published in Haiti, the predecessors to, Apollo, uh, to Mabini in the Philippines established a nationalist organization and newspaper in Madrid aptly titled Solidarity. And Mabini himself wrote of how his fellow Filipino revolutionaries needed to unite for anti-colonial struggle. <clears throat> as long as there are national frontiers erected and maintained by the selfishness of races and dynasties, you must unite in a perfect solidarity of purposes and interests to have strength, he says. Frantz Fanon later deploys the solidarity concept similarly, though adding to it a critique of Marxist versions of the concept. Slide, please. In one of his lesser known articles, The Algerian Conflict and African Anti-Colonialism in 1957, Fanon writes this, the necessary response to colonialism's tactical cleverness 
is a strategic solidarity amongst the territories occupied by French forces. Today, we can measure the illusionness of the famous doctrine according to which organic solidarity exists between the proletariat of colonialist countries and that of colonized peoples. In actual fact, the theory of anti-colonialism is being formulated today, and all the theses previously put forward have proven entirely false. In their struggle, colonized peoples must essentially count on their colonized brothers. Here, Fanon critiques Marxist assumptions that class forms the basis of solidarity. And Fanon and his contemporaries, like M.A. Césaire argued, such assumptions overlooked racial division. Furthermore, Fanon sees solidarity as group unity beyond the nation, extending to all colonies. If Furman critiqued the solidarity concept for justifying alliances among whites, and if Mabini deployed the concept to speak of national loyalty amidst revolutions, Fanon sees it as the basis for transnational alliances among the colonized. This too was an innovative reformulation, I'd argue, of the solidarity concept, unmooring it from its Durkheimian and Marxian variants. Solidarity is here not a natural product of the division of labor, but rather created through struggle against an other. Political struggles against oppression generate solidarity. Opposition generates unity of identity and feelings of connectedness. Finally, the third problematic slide, please. <clears throat> I'd like to just briefly discuss this before I wrap up. And this is, has to do with global hierarchy and intersocietal interdependence. Now, Emmanuel Wallerstein made a big splash when he theorized society as a singular hierarchical world system. And more recent post-colonial sociologists insist upon seeing societies and in, as enmeshed in connected histories. But it was anti-colonial thinkers um, who had done this work and overcome methodological nationalism long ago. It is no accident that Wallerstein says that his world systems theory was partly inspired by Fanon's writings. For Fanon had already, before Wallerstein, theorized how imperialism created a global system of interconnected exploitation, and many of Fanon's colleagues theorized similarly. It should be already transparent, of course, that anti-colonial thinkers spent much time analyzing imperialism's impact upon their societies not just its economic impact, but also its social, cultural, and psychological effects. And this was itself an innovation for it recognized societal interdependencies and interrelations that metropolitan sociologies ignored because they did not see them. Our discipline is founded upon an endogenous narrative of Western European development as embedded in classic social theories. And what these theories ignored, and hence what our founding narratives ignore, is that global relations in the form of empire and colonialism have been constitutive of modern societies and global modernity. And this is where anti-colonial thinkers enter. Their concerns over empire and colonialism allow them to not only see empire and colonialism as constitutive forces of modernity, but also to see the global connections and global relations of domination that metropolitan sociology ignored. Anti-colonial thinkers have long offered global narratives of modernity, from CLR James's account of the French and Haitian revolutions to Suzanne Césaire's surrealist, surrealist writings on the impact of global slavery, to Mahdi Amel's theory of colonialism and underdevelopment, these and many other accounts offer exactly the connected historical sociologies, uh, analyses of world systems and dependencies that folks have been demanding uh, in recent years. I'd argue that just as Latour's mantra is, we have never been modern, a key mantra of anti-colonial sociology is, we have never been methodologically nationalist. Now, unfortunately, I don't have time to go much further here. So let me wrap up. Um, slide, please. 
And I just want to conclude with uh, just a few points of clarification. First, as might be clear, my project is meant to join recent attempts to rethink the sociological canon and the Eurocentric basis of sociology. I'm hoping that anti-colonial thought might be taken more seriously as offering an alternative critical sociology. But unlike some recent attempts to rethink the canon, my goal in advancing anti-colonial thought is not to replace Marx or Weber or Durkheim or Bourdieu or whomever with some other presumably genius thinker. I, for one, fear we spend too much time trying to craft space for one individual additional thinker and put them in the canon, herald that individual as some kind of new salvation. I think we need to be careful here. We should instead track sets of ideas, broader discourses and traditions that need not be grounded in a single individual, however genius that individual may be. I invite us to rethink this Mount Rushmore model of the canon. And this is why my talk discusses multiple thinkers rather than delving too deeply into a single thinker. Second slide, please. I'd like to make clear that my goal is not to presume that in anti-colonial thought, I'm finding a set of sociological ideas or discourses that are somehow outside of a dominant Western European framework, somehow uncontaminated by European influences. Anti-colonial thought does not mark a space of pristine prelapsarian purity. It exists in a space of critical engagement with the Anglo-European empires, with their standpoint and discourses. Mabini, Fanon, César, Du Bois, they don't pretend to ignore European thought. They critically engage it and sometimes creatively appropriate it and their ideas, again, amidst their anti-colonial struggle, which is itself an engagement. Slide, please. Third and finally, <clears throat> my project is not exactly the same thing as a project that seeks to or certain variants of a project that seek to recover what is sometimes called Southern theory or non-Western or non-European theory. Now, I'm not against these projects, but I do worry that sometimes, depending upon how they're carried out or how they're received, they fall prey to an uncritical, unreflexive, geo-epistemic essentialism. By this, I mean the ontological assumption that the world can be divided into distinct essentialized geographical spaces, such as the North and South or West and the non-West, and that these spaces map directly onto cultures and knowledge formations. Some misreadings of Southern theory seeking to advance new critical sociologies then mount their projects upon this essentialism and use geoepistemic essentialism as the basis for inclusion and rejection. That is, they claim that just because a thinker is in or from one of those certain geographical spaces, i.e. just because a thinker is from the global South, their knowledge is necessarily oppositional and therefore should necessarily count as alternative knowledge. Simultaneously, by this geoepistemic essentialism, any thinker in or from the global North or from Europe is to be rejected. This is highly, deeply problematic to me, both in its ontology of the world and its assumption that geographic location maps onto knowledge directly. Note that by this criteria, W.E.B. Du Bois would not count for an alternative sociological canon. He spent his entire life in the United States until the end. Note too that by this criteria, someone like Ibn Khaldun has been heralded as some kind of critical voice offering an alternative to Eurocentric sociology. But Khaldun's standpoint was not a critical one. He was a court scholar. His theories of asabia and of cyclical state formation 
represented the standpoint of dynastic power intent upon preserving and prolonging dynastic rule. Now, I teach Khaldun here in sociology. My point is not to reject. It's rather to question rather than assume the geoepistemic essentialism that have undergirded the embrace of his thought is somehow necessarily oppositional and critical because it is presumably non-Western. So my point is that if we are to search for alternative sociologies, we need to be clearer about our sociology of knowledge that underpins the project, our historical sociology of sociology that guides the project, and by the same tokens, our criteria of inclusion. And here is where my interest in anti-colonial thought lies. My point is not to divide up the world into distinct geographic regions and assume that knowledge from one site is superior to the other. As opposed to this ontology of geographically based cultures, my interest in anti-colonial thought is grounded upon an ontology of global hierarchy forged by histories of colonialism and empire. I don't assume that Fanon or Mabel Dove offer potentially rich insights that might help us forge an alternative and critical sociology because they wrote in what is today called the global south. Instead, the wager is that they and others have potentially alternative ideas about the social because of their subordinated position in global hierarchies of power and their distinct experiences in their society that they embed, but which have been ignored by dominant sociology. In other words, the space of anti-colonial thought does not mark an essential position of race or geography, but a relational position of experience, of subordination, and of domination. While imperial sociology embeds the experiences, interests, and concerns of metropolitan elites in the Anglo-European center, anti-colonial sociologies embed the standpoint of subjugated peoples whose voices and minds have been marginalized as lesser, inferior, as not offering valuable social knowledge at all. And so, to conclude, I'm suggesting that to recover this body of thought is to recover an alternative to imperial sociology and an alternative to its imperial standpoint. If you want a critical alternative to imperial sociology, one place to start is anti-imperial, anti-colonial thought, which has for too long been repressed, but which might just be the key to unlocking a more expanded sociological imagination that is analytically alive to the relations of power and domination plaguing us today. Thank you. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you very much, Julian, for offering such a rich, detailed and wide-ranging presentation of the key contours of anti-colonial thought as social theory. And now we're going to make you work again now, just as you want to take a rest. Um, it seems to me that as a form of social theory, your arguments are rigorous and systematic without being systematizing. You're resisting the temptation to canonize, for example, and this makes them incredibly compelling, powerful, and important. I've lots of questions of my own, uh, and I could keep you here for, for hours just to ask those, but instead I think we'll open uh, to the floor. We've got several questions in already, and some of them are really great, gritty questions, so uh, uh, hold on to, to your hat. Um, for everybody in the audience, please type your questions, make them short if you can, uh, into the Q&A box. 
And, and if possible, please tell us who you are, give us your name and an affiliation. Uh, one of the most fascinating things about the online events is that people come from everywhere rather than just being uh, stuck at the LSE. Uh, okay, so Julian, I've got the first question here uh, is from uh, Janet Cobran, uh, a visitor from Oakland, California. And the question here is, would you discuss your thoughts about the current ongoing Israeli settler colonial project and how the proposed One Democratic State of Palestine, ODSP, resolution relates to anti-colonial thought? That is a, a very good question. It's a huge question. Uh, I'm, I'm no expert on this issue. Um, I guess the most I'll say is that um, what the Israeli settler colonialism raises to me is, is two things. One is that um, it's one among many recognitions that colonialism isn't over, that empire isn't over, um, and that anti-colonial thought um, also isn't over. And that um, I think that social science and the academy needs to take this seriously and recognize not only these ongoing settler colonial projects and other forms of colonial projects, including um, settler colonialism in my very city and in, in the United States and Australia and other places, um, not only to recognize them and their negative effects and critique them, but also to um, acknowledge anti-colonial movements and, and think about those movements as offering potentially important and rich insights that we can learn from. Um, and so I think that we need to pay more attention to uh, movements against Israeli settler colonialism. We need to pay more attention to, say, uh, Palestinian voices um, that, again, what I'm suggesting is that um, these need to be thought of as forms of knowledge and, and, and we I hopefully can stop um, relegating them to the margins and recognizing that these are valuable voices. That's the most I'd have to say about that. Thanks, Julian. Uh, next question is from Reme Twahira, who's a PhD student uh, here at the LSE in the Department of Sociology. Uh, and the question is as follows. Uh, Dr. Go, in your talk, you mentioned the non-academic origin of anti-colonial thinking, notably through the work of artists, journalists, activists, and so on. I was finding this really interesting as well. I have two questions about this. The first one. How do we take seriously anti-colonial thought considering the fetishism of empiricism, i.e. empirical studies, numbers, graphs, etc., that disciplines our discipline? Second, considering the political purpose of anti-colonial thought, how to make sure, how can we make sure that anti-colonial thought continues to destabilize our discipline, the academy, and not its co-option by the still colonial, colonial imperial academy and sociology. Thank you again, fantastic questions. Um, each one of these uh, topics could, could be an entire lecture. And um, again, I, I want to um, just offer some humility here and say that these questions overwhelm me. These are beautiful, important questions. And uh, I, I, I not, 100% confident I can do them all justice. Let me say first to the question about the fetishism of empiricism. Um, I definitely agree with this uh, critique of this fetishism. I think the way I think about it is um, 
one thing we need to do is, is not reject social science empiricism, but provincialize it. And I say not rejected because anti-colonial thinkers themselves, I think, um, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them operated through a kind of social scientific mode, using logic and reasoning, calling evidence. Um, du Bois is the clearest example, but even I think Fanon contains uh, a real sort of social science going on. So um, I don't think we can reject empiricism. I think it's important. I think it's through empiricism that Du Bois was able to smash um, the ideology uh, uh, and belief in, say, um, uh, biological racism. But I think that what we can do is provincialize it, by which I mean recognize its power and capabilities, but also recognize its limitations and allow for other forms of knowledge to, to enlighten us. And this is where I do think artistic modes of expression, um, uh, all these other things that poetry, um, that again, we don't take to be forms of knowledge. Uh, I think that we need to be more open to them. There is of course, visual sociology already, um, but I, I think that we can try to be a little bit more uh, open to these other forms. Um, and I think anti looking into anti-colonial thinkers, again, you know, think about the negritude movement, for example, or surrealism. Um, these are powerful expressions that I think sociology should make room for and, and, and be more open to and, and not oppose empiricism to these forms um, or have these forms be opposed to empiricism, but recognize them as different modes of understanding and different modes of expression that are um, that we should think of as equally valid and, and serving particular um, and, and, and valuable functions in their own right. Um, <clears throat> secondly, how do we make sure that anti-colonial thought is not co-opted? Um, this is, a, 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 I think, a, an important issue. Uh, I, for one, um, am been concerned with two things, really. First is ensuring um, and this is what I was getting at at the end of my topic, ensuring that anti-colonial thought isn't co-opted in the sense of it's not reduced to non-Western thought. Um, what I've seen in attempts to say, redo syllabi, redo the core curriculum, including here at the University of Chicago, where we have a core curriculum um, that every undergraduate has to go through, um, the way in which certain alternative ideas have sometimes been proposed is to have someone like Ibn Khaldun, who again is seen as offering critical ideas because he's non-Western. Um, I think that we need to think harder about the criteria of inclusion. And so um, I think that the criteria for inclusion need to be kept in mind. And that's one way in which we can prevent anti-colonial thought being um, uh, sort of co-opted. In other words, to prevent anti-colonial thought from being co-opted, we have to be clear about what anti-colonial thought is and what it isn't and not mistake other forms of, 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 of discourse for it. Um, <clears throat> the second thing is um, uh, my other concern is, um, is the way in which sometimes, not all the time, sometimes um, these attempts to make room for alternative knowledges uh, is too easily reduced to identity politics, um, where we overlook the ideas for and, and, and fetishize the racial or geographic identity of, of the thinkers. I think that, of course, we have to pay attention to these questions of representation, but I would hate to see anti-colonialism um, co-opted into a, an identity politics movement. 
um, I think that that does injustice to the ideas and the powerful ideas that are involved. And so I think we have to be very careful um, to not um, reduce the two, uh, or re re not reduce the epistemic value of anti-colonialist thought to um, merely to questions of, of identity. And I, 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 these are just warnings. Um, and, and, and I think that um, if we can heed these warnings a little bit as we engage in our projects and our, and our, and our uh, knowledge uh, politics, then I think we can hopefully do better and maybe, tr maybe ward off some of the co-optation, which I do see um, is, is dangerous and, and is beginning to happen in some, in some sectors. Thank you for your question. Thanks, Julian. Uh, the next question echoes something I've been uh, wanting to ask you as well. It's from Nikki Huang of Boston University. Uh, the question is, what advice would you have for younger scholars looking to incorporate anti-colonial thought into their work when we are overwhelmingly instructed in metropolitan sociology? How can we break away? Thanks for that question, um, Nikki. Um, that's an, another great question. How can we break away? I think the first thing you need to do is, um, probably the main thing, is to follow the lead of your um, predecessors. You know, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants. We're standing on the shoulders of social movements here in the United States in the late 1960s and the early 1970s. It was students who demanded changes in the curriculum. It was students who demanded uh, more diverse um, syllabi. Um, and that has led to a lot of successes as, as well as a lot of failures. Um, but it, it's, it's a large part of the reason why us older scholars, I think, um, are doing what we're doing is in direct or indirect response to student demands. So I think that um, the best thing to do is to make demands and, and, and to uh, make demands upon your curriculum, make demands upon your, um, the powers that be, that, that you want additional voices too. You're willing to put in the work to learn about um, these other thinkers and these other traditions, but you also demand um, some kind of expansion, some kind of um, alternatives as well. So, um, you know, I know that's hard to do. Students feel powerless often, but again, I, I, I personally take inspiration from the student movements um, that have been ongoing for decades and that have really, I think, created the energy um, since the 60s and 70s um, towards diversifying the curriculum and, and, and diversifying the academy, really. So I, I would look to inspiration uh, I, I would look to those movements for inspiration and then follow their lead. Thanks, Julian. Uh, some great questions coming in. I think it shows how much impact your uh, lecturers had. The, the next one's from Brandon Sward, who's a PhD candidate at the University of Chicago, currently in Los Angeles. The question is as follows. Do you think there's a relationship between colonialism and methodology? How might we expand beyond traditionally Eurocentric ways of knowing like the peer-reviewed written publication? Again, fantastic uh, question. Um, I am not 100% certain, certain that the lines between colonialism and certain epistemic procedures or institutional procedures are always so clear. I think that in each case, we have to take it differently. I, you know, for example, I don't think that sociology is imperial in the sense that it has historically directly served the interests uh, directly of 
of empires. It's not as if sociologists in all cases and all times are sort of, you know, pro-imperialist and are sort of advancing imperialist causes. They have in some cases, but I think the relationship between knowledge and power here needs to be nuanced and understood in more complex ways. Um, and so just, uh, for example, um, I, I'm not sure peer review, I would call peer review a colonialist intervention. I, I, I'm just not confident in that. I know that there are problems with peer review, but I, I think that there are some mechanisms of social science like peer review that we need to keep in place because I do think we need to maintain some kind of um, community of scholars who are um, holding up certain standards. Um, so I, I'm not sure that social science, I guess another way to, to put it is that I don't think social science is intrinsically imperialist or colonialist. I think that that is, is, is a wrong way to think about it. I think the way it gets used, I think some of the questions it has traditionally asked, the standpoint it expresses, these things can be imperial. But as a mode of thought, I, I don't think social science in itself is imperialist. Again, I think of W.E.B. Du Bois. W.E.B. Du Bois was the first real social scientist mobilizing data, using reason to, to smash the myths of, 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 of racialized society. And he used the tools of social science for that. Of course, he was uh, marginalized by mainstream institutions. And I think today there's a, lot, uh, there's a lot of ways in which important good social science is marginalized. Um, but I, I, I just, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't equate social science in and of itself with imperialism. I think that's, it's a much more nuanced and complicated um, relationship than that. Thanks, Julian. I can see there's a kind of two kinds of questions at the moment. We've got the, the broad questions about the discipline of sociology and methods and how it's taught. Um, and we've got very specific cases. Um, and the next one is of the latter kind. It's from Jim Ferguson. And the question is as follows. In Canada, Indigenous thinkers demand national recognition, multiple within the state. Are they wrong in your definition of good anti-colonial thought? Um, so I, this is a, it's a great question. I think it gets at my definition of anti-colonialism, um, which, you know, I admit I didn't really go into too deeply. Um, and I think my, my, my short answer would be that we have to keep a somewhat capacious, or I try to keep a somewhat capacious, capacious definition of anti-colonialism. And by that broader definition, I don't think demands for national recognition should be seen as non-anti-colonial. Um, you know, I think all of these anti-colonial movements and all of these anti-colonial thinkers that I'm talking about, again, are engaging with the forms and structures in which they live. And that's going to sometimes entail um, using the tools of, of the master. If national recognition is want to be thought of as a tool of the master, I think that we can um, recognize that that is a, a, a valid anti-colonial claim. Um, a lot of the anti-colonial movements that I look at and I've studied, uh, for example, early Puerto Rican anti-colonial nationalism took the form of wanting to become a state in the United States, wanted to be equal. I don't think the fight for equality in status, whether it be citizen status or national status, or I think that's, I don't think that's, anti I don't think that's not anti-colonial. That is purely anti-colonial because anti-colonial uh, movements are striving to overcome colonial structures. And one of the colonial structures has been exactly the uh, creation of inequality in statuses and citizenship and nationhood and participation in the polity. So um, I think that that still would be seen as anti-colonial. 
Thanks, Julian. Uh, the next question is from Avani Ashtika, uh, who is at the Department of Sociology, LSE. Uh, the question is as follows. In your lecture, you mentioned that we should think about anti-colonial thinkers as operating beyond nationalist paradigms. How does reading anti-colonial thought as an internationalist thought allow us to think resistance against empire beyond order? Yeah, great question. I think that this is where, say, for example, my discussion of anti-colonial solidarity comes in, right? People like um, Fanon or Cesare, some of these other anti-colonial thinkers, um, it's a complicated way in which they dealt with transnationalism and nationalist movements. Um, if we just take Fanon as an example, Fanon wanted to mobilize nationalist movements for a anti-colonial struggle, which would then lead to a more cosmopolitan uh, movement beyond borders. But for Fanon, at least, and I think for some of these other movements, um, nationalism needs to be thought of as one platform for that, a first step in that larger project. So um, I think some of these anti-colonial thinkers who are operating at a time, remember, when the nation state was the ideal, they were trying to at least once deploy the nation state form and nationalism, but also try to transcend it. Um, and the transcendence is ultimately for them based upon exactly not, not so much an international solidarity because that still imagines the nation as the dominant long-lasting form. I think Fanon was actually thinking way beyond the nation, um, was thinking more about a, a post-colonial cosmopolitanism where it's mounted upon nationalism, but then it surpasses it um, and it embraces humanity. Um, and in many ways, some of these anti-colonial thinkers need to be thought of as good old traditional humanists where borders are not what matters. But um, humanity matters. And I think that that's how a lot of them saw their project and, and saw and thought about anti-colonial solidarity and, and thought about how you would move beyond the nation where you, um, again, when you use existing political structures, but you ultimately seek to transcend them. And I think what they were going for was a kind of form of what I've called elsewhere post-colonial cosmopolitanism. So um, I, I really learn a lot from reading these anti-colonial thinkers when they start talking about things like anti-colonial struggle, because they are on the one hand, again, talking about mobilizing the nation, but they're also talking about uniting across borders and heading towards something more um, broader and beyond the nation. And it's a really interesting dynamic and a really interesting struggle. And which again, metropolitan thinkers, majority of them really had a hard time thinking about at all. So um, uh, there's a lot of different ways in which we can learn from these anti-colonial thinkers when it comes to things like um, transnational, what we might call transnational or global or cosmopolitan struggle. Thank you, Julian. Uh, the next question is from Ben Waite. Uh, the question is as follows. Taking the Kwame Nkrumah example into a more generalized form, how do you account for the failure of most post-colonial nations and put into practice the inspiring visions they have for society? Is external interference by the US, former imperial powers, to blame or are the internal weaknesses more important here? Fantastic question. And again, um, I would only resort to the anti-colonial thinkers themselves who had a lot to say about this. You know, again, Fanon had a lot to say about this. Um, Mabel Dove had a lot to say about this. Um, and I, I think in their analysis, which I tend to agree with, knowing what I do know about the history, it's, it's both. It's both the persistent forms of imperialism and intervention um, but it's also the deficiencies within the society brought on by 
say, the contradictions of capitalism um, as that are expressed nationally. Um, and so, again, the critiques of the comprador bourgeoisie, I think, are very important to keep in mind. Um, you know, you don't need uh, Western um, thinkers or Western NGOs to critique the corruption of post-colonial regimes. Um, thinkers, people within those societies are critiquing those, those forms of, of corruption and, and, and the, the, the exploitation by the, the comprador bourgeoisie and by elites in their own societies. And so, you know, I think for them, yes, it's imperial intervention, but it's an alliance of the imperialists with local, local interests. And again, this is something very, uh, I think, important to, 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 to recognize that these are offering important insights about the dilemmas of post-colonial societies. They may or may not have solutions, but at least they're addressing them. And again, this is something that metropolitan sociologies just don't address or have the, the relevant analytic tools for, I would argue. Thanks, Julian. We've got about 10 minutes left, so uh, I'll start crunching the questions together quite soon, but we'll keep them uh, individual for now. Uh, the first one is from uh, Mariam from the University of Edinburgh. And the question's nice and short. Should we expect that decolonizing social theory will transcend nature-society division too and will help us to tackle climate change and other environmental issues better? Fantastic question. And I hope that you can get a sense from my own lecture today on some of the thought, social thought of indigenous thinkers. I think that anti-colonial thought needs to be the resource for reformulating our conceptions of society in a way that is more sensitive to the relations between um, nature and, and humans. Um, again, metropolitan society, uh, metropolitan sociology has failed over and over again in the past hundred years on this count. And I think that the, the indigenous thinkers I mentioned, uh, Mukherjee that I mentioned, um, probably many more, they're much more sensitive to the complex relations between man and nature. And I do think that anti-colonial thought is at least one potentially rich resource for this necessary project of rethinking society, what it means, what its boundaries are, in order to better tackle questions like climate change. And so this is just a, a cheerleading call to let's pay more attention to anti-colonial thinkers because they are offering some important insights on precisely this issue. Thanks. Yeah, that really uh, stood out to me, actually, in your presentation, that point. I think it's incredibly powerful uh, and a lot to think about. The next question is Emilie Delon undergraduate at Cambridge University, currently in Paris, France. And the question is as follows. Do you think there is a potential for anti-colonial social thought to shape politics today, considering the embeddedness of imperial epistemology in the range of disciplines that influence politics, such as economics, international relations, political theory? And if so, how do we think, how do you think it can shape politics? Again, fantastic question, um, an important question. Um, and I don't have a simple answer for that. I have an answer from my standpoint as a teacher. Ultimately, I think of myself as a teacher. Um, and from my standpoint, what I see are um, students in my classrooms very interested in the kinds of ideas that anti-colonial thought offers and, and very interested in how they can rethink the world based upon those ideas. Um, and apply them in their politics. And that to me is, is important. And to me, that's how I imagine at least something like socioeconomic sociology uh, playing a role, which is through enlightening the minds of those who listen to us and who tend to be, not always, tend to be our students. 
Um, and so I have students who uh, read Fanon and start thinking about how um, their struggles on the streets of Chicago against militarized policing can't be disassociated from um, struggles in other countries uh, against militarized policing or against empire, right? I have students who are um, thinking about how Black Lives Matter, for example, needs to uh, do better about aligning with uh, Palestinian movements and uh, with anti-imperial movements because they're seeing the kinds of global connections that anti-colonialists and, and, uh, enlighten us on. Um, and that's just one among many examples. I think that the power of sociological thought, the power of sociological imagination is something that I don't underestimate when it comes to mobilizing for politics and for getting people to rethink politics. Um, I just think that um, the sociological imagination has been for too long um, constricted and constrained by our longstanding standing imperial canon. Um, and so that's why I think that anti-colonial thought is, is a way to reimagine the, the world um, in ways that has direct uh, relevance for politics. Thanks for your question. Thanks, Julian. I'll ask two together now, if 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 that's okay. Uh, they, they kind of touch each other. Um, let's see. The first is from Zihuan Zhang, who is a PhD candidate in sociology at the University of Sheffield here in the UK. And it's a nice short question, but uh, potentially a big answer. I was wondering if we could understand anti-colonial thought in relation to post-colonial and decolonial theories. If so, how? Uh, that's that question. The next one is from Alma Kaiser, LSE alum, alumni, uh, alumna in Germany. Uh, the question is, in what ways do we need to acknowledge the knowledge of those who are not part of academia, but marginalized within university nonetheless? In what ways does non-academic knowledge, apart from the arts, need to be critically engaged in anti-colonial thought? Uh Thank you for those very good questions um, and important questions. The first one about anti-colonial and post-colonial thought. So um, in my book, Post-Colonial Thought and Social Theory, I discuss this a little bit and I argue that what we have called post-colonial thought uh, in the academy um, has typically been associated with an academic movement. Um, and I think decolonial thought has also been associated with an academic movement. Um, and what I suggest is that the roots of that academic epistemic movement lie in the anti-colonial thought that I'm talking about in this, in this lecture. That is that the anti-colonial thought I'm talking about <coughs> is the sort of political social form of thought that then what gets called post-colonial thought or decolonial thought takes up in an academic sense, or at least in a, in a more um, intellectual discourse. So I think I see them as directly related. Um, anti-colonial thought is, 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 is emerges from political struggle um, and post-colonial, decolonial thought, again, what gets called that um, in the academy is the sort of academic version of that um, form of thought. So I, I, I argue that they're directly, that, that anti-colonial and post-colonial thought are, are directly related, um, at least in that sense. Um, <clears throat> and the second question about um, non-academic forms of thought, again, I think that this is something that I'm, I'm trying to uh, illuminate by thinking about these anti-colonial thinkers. Um, I think that there are um, ways in which we can think about other forms of thought, even if we don't necessarily want to call it anti-colonial, but forms of thought of, of um, 
non-academic forms of thought, actually. I think that we, we can open up ourselves to these forms of thought as well. You know, to, in many ways, proper sociology, um, like proper ethnographies can do this. I, I think we already have the tools, the way in which, if it's done properly and done with an open mind, um, ethnographies can really, you know, we can think about maybe epistemic ethnographies where we are actually learning from people whose knowledge is are seen as not knowledge. Um, and I think that sociology has tools for that. And, I, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I would encourage that. Um, and there are um, uh, folks who are thinking about social movements there at LSE, uh, scholars, young sociologists who are thinking about social movements as forms of knowledge in themselves. And I, I think people are now very much open to this um, project. And, and again, part of it, a large part of it is, is about recognizing that forms of knowledge are multiple, that it's not just about academic knowledge. Um, and that we need to think harder about ways in which to um, to engage with those forms of knowledge and learn from them. My talk about anti-colonial thought today is one expression of this project, um, but there are many other possible expressions of it. Thanks, Julian. Time is getting tight, so this may be the last two questions. We'll see how we go because we want to. We have to stop uh, on on the dot of eight. Uh, so the first question is from Anera Edmonds, and it goes like this. Are you saying that European or metropolitan anti-colonialist thinkers of the post-war period were somehow inauthentic or dependency theorists weren't either because they had unacknowledged precursors? And the second question is from Nathan Moyo, who says, this is an excellent presentation. The concept of beyond geo-epistemic essentialism is exciting, uh, but how does one reconcile this with the locus of enunciation which sensitizes us to the geography and biography of knowledge? Two great questions. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, let me take the first question. Um, the answer is no. I'm not saying that anti-colonial voices in Europe are inauthentic or that Latin American thought is uh, dependency theory is inauthentic. I, I never once used that word. Um, if that was all at all the impression, um, then that's uh, my bad. And I, and I thank you for the opportunity to correct that. Uh, what I'm trying to get us to do is acknowledge other forms of thought. And I'm referring to these um, discourses as ways to contextualize these. Um, so, you know, uh, when I say that before Latin American dependency theory, there were these other critiques um, coming from anti-colonial thinkers, that's not to register any critique of Latin American dependency theory. It's just to contextualize the kinds of um, theories that I am talking about. Um, secondly, the, the, the question about... Um, uh, geo-epistemic essentialism. I mean, it's a, it's a tricky task and it's the same kind of dilemma we face when we talk about social construction of, say, race. On the one hand, there is a set of social and historical processes by which geographic regions have become equated with or have become sites of domination, exploitation, and have become equated with certain cultural forums and certain social forums. Um, and so in that sense, there is not a complete disassociation between say geographic location and um, social knowledge and, and culture and so on. What my point is, is that we can't fetishize that relationship. We have to be very careful about essentialism essentially, which is the, which is the problem, which is taking those socially constructed um, uh, equations between geography, race, space, 
um, and knowledge and culture, taking those as, as given um, and rather than questioning them. And again, for the reasons I mentioned in the talk, um, this, is, this is something we cannot do if we are going to try to really forge an alternative critical sociology rather than re reproduce the standpoint of power. So, um, yes, we have to acknowledge, of course, that uh, a lot of anti-colonial thought is going to come from certain geographic spaces, but we, we can't use those geographic spaces in and of themselves as the sole criteria for inclusion. My point is that we tend to often do that, and that's a problem. Muted now. Julian, thank you very, very much. You've, uh, you've got through 15 questions we're counting, uh, which is <laughs> a lot, and they've been very, very wide-ranging. The presentation itself, the lecture was absolutely brilliant. I can't wait to see the printed version uh, and to gather together commentaries. Uh, and I think for the, for the benefit of uh, listeners, what normally happens, I think in terms of timing, we would hope to get this out uh, into the journal by January next year. Um, and what we do try to do, for those of you that uh, are looking from outside university, we try to make all of the pieces, including Julian's lecture, uh, free to download for at least the first few months. So it's widely available. I also hope to be interviewing Julian about these ideas at some point uh, before the publication. So we'll, we'll be able to put the video, both of this lecture and of that interview, uh, on on the website of the LSE and of the British Journal of Sociology. Julian, on behalf of everyone present, who I'm sure would be uh, roaring with applause if they were in the room with us, uh, thank you so much for taking such care and giving such a fantastic presentation. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for coming. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app, and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.